has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Many bits that once were are lost, for none now live who can find them in memory. It began with the forging of the great computers. Three were given to Big Blue, immortal, wisest and fairest of all beings. Seven to the mini-computers, great runners of Fortran. And nine, nine token rings. Tom, Tom, gifted. Tom, Tom. Wait, wait, wait. What, 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 what are you doing? Uh, are you writing a computer history fan fiction again? Because we've talked about this. But Scott, what about the one data connection to rule them all? Okay, Tom, now that we've got some food in you, are you feeling a little more like yourself? Ah, yes. Got a brace of conies and some taters, and I'm ready to record this week's episode. So at the end of all this, are we going to have to throw a USB cable in the volcano? No, Scott, we'll probably save that for season two. No, today we're looking at the curious case of data cables and interfaces. If you're looking at that pile of USB, firewire, maybe even old SCSI cables in a drawer, you probably would like to throw them into the fires of Mount Doom, I'm sure. So why did we end up with so many different ways to connect things, and why do they keep changing? It's a swirling world of competing protocols, grand visions, and sometimes dubious implementations. Where do we even start, Scott? Ah, uh, Tom, even a fool of a toque wouldn't be surprised to find that the big boss man at the center of this very first data connector was international business machines. IBM is one of the most defining forces in the very early days of computing. And while other companies were making mainframes in the 1950s, I mean, it was kind of IBM versus everybody else, and nobody got fired for going with IBM. The industry didn't refer to the market as IBM and the Seven Dwarves for nothing, Scott. IBM used its market dominance to introduce a lot of innovation, including introducing the first hard drive in 1956, the IBM 350 Disk Storage Unit, designed as an optional accessory for your IBM 305 Ramac mainframe. Oh, my goodness. And like the computer it was tied to, the hard drive wasn't exactly light on its feet. It literally weighed a ton. I'm not kidding when I say that. And used 52 24-inch diameter plates to store 3.75 megabytes. <laughs> yeah, IBM almost killed that drive as a product because it was initially seen as a threat to IBM's punch card business which sounds laughable, but you've got to realize that punch cards were what IBM had built its business on and were the primary way to get information into memory at that point. Big Blue had introduced magnetic tape storage a few years earlier, but it wasn't nearly as useful for retrieving specific pieces of data. You see, tape storage is great for reading or writing, a fire hose stream of data, but that's about it. A hard drive is smoother. So with this emergence of different ways to store data, we also see the rise of rudimentary data interconnects. Basically, how does the data communicate with the computer? We knew we needed a man on the inside to explain this, so we turned to Howard Marks. He's been in the storage industry for 40 years and has worked with just about everything in the industry. Uh, in the mainframe world, there were two cables. They're called bus and tag. They're each on the order of 50 conductors. And the connectors were about two inches by three inches on each one. So you're pulling this thing that's you know roughly the size of two garden snakes with iPhones at the end of the cable 
under the floor to connect a disk drive to a channel on a mainframe. And the disk drives, of course, looked like washing machines. This is before we really get into the idea of open standards when it comes to these kinds of interconnects for the simple reason that when people bought from IBM or any other company, they were buying everything from them, from mainframes to terminals, printers, data storage, certainly cables and interconnect. That vertical integration combined with IBM's dominance in the first several decades in computing actually created the conditions for other companies to innovate. For example, IBM's Model 2311 hard drive was so popular that in 1968, Memorex, before they would be famous for cassette tapes, introduced the Memorex 630, a plug-compatible hard drive that could work with IBM's controller. So in these mainframe days of computing, we see hard drives increasing in density. In 1956, you were able to store 3.75 megabytes over eh, 50-odd hard drive platters. By the late 70s, early 80s, you were looking at something like 300 megabyte drives. Of course, these were still the size of washing machines in a lot of cases. Yeah, really hard to get on your USB keychain. We start seeing <laughs> interconnects really explode in the 70s and 80s as mainframes no longer dominates. You know those newfangled mini computers and eventually personal computers? What's fascinating is that there's still not a lot of integration when it comes to these type of data devices. One of the most important types of interconnects comes between the hard drive itself and its controller. It's something that's been integrated on devices for decades now, but that wasn't the case then. We talked to Howard about the de facto interface at the time, the ST506, and just how limited it was. Basically, you know, there was a controller card that was the size of a hard drive. And it would bolt on the bottom of the hard drive and it would connect with the, the then standard ST506 interface which again was two ribbon cables, one for command that daisy chained between up to four hard drives, and then a separate data ribbon cable from each hard drive to the controller. So if you had four hard drives, there's one cable that goes daisy chain on the four and four separate cables for the data. And ST506 was intensely stupid. Back in those days, disk drives weren't that smart. The, what we think of as the controller is now part of the disk drive. But back then it was a separate card. And so the commands that went over ST506 weren't go to track 27, but step in, step in, step in. So the controller had to remember what track it's on now. And then the operating system would say, I need this data from this track. And the controller was responsible for going, okay, that's 37. Let me send 37 step pulses and I can't send them too fast because the drive would not interpret them one at a time. Yeah, we're talking about stupid stuff. The computer was an 8-bit Z80 with 64K of memory. You have more compute power in your watch. So imagine if the computer is that stupid, how stupid the disk drive has to be. The same company that made the ST506 interface was also behind the next big innovation in data connections. Up to this point, we've been talking about connectors that specialize in talking to the disk. But the Shugart Associate System interface was designed to connect any kind of peripheral to a computer by providing a bridge from the low-level or dumb interface of a peripheral 
to a host computer. Now, Shugart Associates Systems Interface, or SASI, S-A-S-I, might not be too familiar to people today. That's because when it was presented as a standard to the American National Standards Institute, they didn't want a company's name to be included in the standard. It felt a little weird and commercial. So instead of Shugart Associates Systems Interface, in 1982, they agreed to call it the Small Computer System Interface, or SCSI, or as we've all come to know and love it, SCSI. Now that, I remember, kind of tells you about the scale of computers in the early 80s when the small computer system interface was designed for servers and mini computers. Well, the cost of a SCSI interface prevented it from being adopted for a lot of other peripherals, it essentially became the lingua franca of storage. Yeah, SCSI today is most associated with enterprise, not the ship in Star Trek, but business. But when it officially became a standard in 1986, it was commonly used for PCs from Amiga, Atari, Apple, Sun Microsystems, and the like. And there's an important distinction here between SCSI as a protocol and as an interface. The interface has changed a lot over the years. It first started off as a parallel interface, offering up to 10 megabits per second over a 68-pin cable. Okay, that's a lot of pins in a cable. We don't see that many pins in a cable these days. When computers and disks weren't really fast, it was easier to move a lot of data through a fatter pipe like that. You didn't have a cool scanner unless you had a SCSI scanner. But with a parallel connection, you have to wait for all the bits to arrive at the end at the same time. So as data speeds increase, it just gets harder to coordinate and you get more latency as the connection has to wait for these slacker bits. But unlike a lot of these other connections and protocols, what gave SCSI its longevity wasn't the speed of a particular interface, but the flexibility of the protocol behind it. So when SCSI maxed out on the speed with a parallel connection, serial attached SCSI still used the same protocol. Want to go over, you know, TCP IP? iSCSI uses the exact same command set. It's supported now on enterprise-grade connections like Fiber Channel, even to consumer devices with USB-attached SCSI. Oh, man, it's getting confusing now. I know. (laughs) So it wasn't one connection to rule them all, but it ended up being a survivor because it was designed from the start to be flexible. But even though SCSI had its early presence in PCs, by the early 90s, it was quickly losing out to another standard. Yeah, remember that dumb old ST506 interface we mentioned? Well, it turns out drives with those interfaces were really popular. So Western Digital came up with Integrated Drive Electronics, or IDE. You old hard drive shoppers, you remember IDE. This integrated those big giant controller cards used by hard drives into the drive itself. Oh yeah, remember old ATA or PADA drives and those giant ribbon cables? Same stuff, same thing. Putting the controller onto the drive itself was a big deal. It let the host computer fully abstract the location of data. So instead of saying, move the drive up ahead one or over six and then on to the next track, or something silly like that, they could just request it to block number 359. Plus, the controllers could be completely specific to a particular drive, which made them more efficient to boot. PADA drives ran into the same parallelism problem as SCSI did and introduced Serial ATA or SATA or SATA in early 2000s. This uses the same command sets but allows for a much higher speed connection using just two pairs of connectors. And parallel connections didn't just hit a wall when it came to interconnects. It was also becoming a problem with onboard computer connections for the same reason. So we see this shift in PCI connections from a 32-bit PCI X slot to a PCIe or Express slot, which is a serial connection. 
Ironically, this move to serial PCIe allowed for a shift in storage to embrace parallelism in a big way. It's all a big circle. That's because when you're talking about a spinning disk drive, whether the connector is a parallel or serial connection, it doesn't change the fact that it can really only do one thing at a time. On a physical level, it can only move its little arm, the actuator, the thing that reads the data, to read or move one piece of data at a time. Now, that's not the case with solid-state drives, which started coming out in the mid to late 2000s or so. Using protocols like SCSI or SATA with an SSD or a solid-state drive is kind of like buying a new RTX graphics card to play Microsoft Flight Simulator, but still using a dial-up connection. That bottleneck is pretty obvious. Oh, it's the dial-up, right? Did I get it right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, which is why we see the development of NVM Express, or just NVME. If you've heard that and wondered what it is, this is what it is. Uh, it showed up in the late 2000s, coming to market in the early 2010s. And similar to SCSI, it provides a set of software commands to let solid-state drives communicate with a host computer. To give you a sense of the change in how things like SCSI or SATA can interact with an SSD compared to an NVMe, well, let's hear from Howard again. If you open up an enterprise SSD, there's eight packages that look like flash chips, but each one of them has 16 flash chips stacked up on top of each other. And the little controller that runs that SSD can talk to all of those flash chips all at the same time. So where SCSI defines one queue and you can have 32 entries in that queue, NVMe supports 64,000 queues with 64,000 entries in each queue. So that kind of brings us current on data connects that are largely targeted at storage. But as much as protocols like SCSI dreamed of being the one to bring balance to all computer connections, there are a whole world of what we can call peripheral data connectors. All those cables. And we might as well start out with the old parallel port, that big, long pink port you've probably seen on an old PC somewhere. Well, this actually came out in 1970 from a company called Centronics, designed to connect to their dot matrix printers. Oh, dot matrix. Nice. As you might have guessed, the parallel port is a parallel connection. It's not just a clever name. And that was by design to help make dot matrix printing faster. The fact that a set of data all arrived at the same time, even if it wasn't faster, was actually a benefit because it allowed the pins on the print head to see the entire value of the letter at the same time. That port basically became the printer port, getting integrated into IBM PCs in 1981. It was cheap to integrate and simple to program, which is why SCSI didn't get adopted for printers. Just wasn't worth the added cost and complexity to these vendors. That isn't to say no one used SCSI for printers and other peripherals. Probably the biggest name to do so was one of its original developers, Apple. But by the late 90s, they were looking for something that was just as versatile as SCSI, but a little faster and easier for users. Oh, man. You're talking about Firewire, Tom. Ah, that takes me back. I forget sometimes how aggressive. Apple had to be to try to get new connection standards going. It's too bad we don't have some tape of Steve Jobs dunking on SCSI while talking about Firewire. Oh, don't we, Scott? And third, Firewire. Today, we are officially rolling out Firewire as part of our product line on the motherboard of every new Power Mac G3. <clears throat> Now, what is Firewire? 
What is FireWire? Think of FireWire as USB, but rather than running at 12 megabits per second, it's running at 400 megabits per second. And it's already an established industry standard. Now, where does all this come from? Well, we have to go back. We have to go back a dozen years to when Apple rolled out SCSI. It was a brilliant decision at that time to use one interface to connect to both internal disk drives and bring a connector out the back to connect to disk drives externally and other peripherals like scanners and other things. It was great. The problem was history has passed it by because SCSI is now, the SCSI that Apple builds in for the external port is way too slow to serve internal disk drives. For internal disk drives and the new Power Mac G3s, we've built in the latest and greatest Ultra ATA. It's super fast to talk to disk drives. And at the high end, we offer an Ultra 2 SCSI card to talk to the highest end drives that our high end publishing customers want. But none of that has anything to do with the SCSI that comes out the back of the product anymore. The technology has passed it by. So let's compare the two. Again, Firewire, rather than 80 megabits per second, it's 400 megabits per second. It's five times faster. Instead of seven devices, you can hook up 63 devices. And unlike SCSI, any number of them can be computers, as we'll see in a minute. It's hot pluggable. You don't have to turn your computer off to connect and disconnect peripherals. You can just plug them right in. Again, the, are, the drivers are dynamically loaded. There are no terminators. <clears throat> and there are no switches. It just works. Now, if you, if you really love these big cables, and if you really love that thing over there, which is a terminator, if you don't get that on, you'll get data corruption or, or it won't work at all. And if you, if you really love switches, we will be glad to sell you a SCSI card for your new Power Mac G3. But if you don't want to futz with all that stuff, there's FireWire built into every new system. Oh, man, you know how much I love interconnect drama. Now, let's clarify, of course, that FireWire is Apple's branding for what is technically called IEEE 1394 high-speed serial bus. I can't imagine why Apple would change such a great name. But it was developed by Apple along with a working group of other partners like Sony, Panasonic, LG, and Toshiba. Weird thing is we're starting to get close to what I'm using now. This is so weird. Anyway, uh, weird note. Sony actually holds the most FireWire patents. Yeah, that's right, Sony. Almost twice the number of Apple. Of course, it's hard to talk about the tragically short life of FireWire without bringing up the 800-pound gorilla in the room, USB. And it gets even weirder because while USB had been around since 1996, a full three years before Apple included built-in FireWire on any Mac, version 1.0 of USB was really slow capping out slower than some parallel ports at 1.5 megabits per second. Initially, USB didn't get much adoption, although it did have good support from operating systems at the time. Well, we forget it now, but it was a really big deal when Apple launched the iMac in 1998 without a lot of legacy ports like SCSI and instead provided a USB 1.1 port with their blistering speeds of up to 12 megabits per second. Now, you might think that Apple upstaged themselves by pushing USB just before they were really starting to introduce FireWire on Power Max in 1999. But at the time, there was a big delta between the two in terms of capability. Yeah, even though USB 1.1 could hit speeds of up to 12 megabits per second, the initial FireWire connections could get up to 400 megabits. That's a giant leap forward. FireWire was also a smarter connection in that all connected devices acted 
like they were on a peer-to-peer network where anyone could act as a host or a client. USB devices always required a host, usually a PC. And like the SCSI it was replacing, it could do data transfers in both directions at full speed. Unfortunately for FireWire, the USB specification didn't stand still. By the early 2000s, USB 2.0 offered a similar 480 megabit top speed. And by 2008, USB 3 would offer up to 5 gigabit. The standard also benefited from being backwards compatible with its then ubiquitous Type A connector, while FireWire required a new port when it moved from 400 to 800 megabit. But it seems like if SCSI and FireWire couldn't stick for Apple, third time was the charm when it came to Thunderbolt. Yeah, so this was developed by Intel with the help of Apple and effectively combines PCI Express, DisplayPort, and power into two serial signals over the same port. First two versions were delivered through a familiar DisplayPort interface, at least on Macs, and at least initially was a really great way to add displays. Yeah, Thunderbolt offered a lot of bandwidth, two 10 gigabit per second lanes in Thunderbolt 1. Now, those could be aggregated together to be even faster in version 2, but Thunderbolt 3 seems to be where the connection really took off. This switched the physical interface for Thunderbolt from DisplayPort to USB-C. From a user perspective, even though USB-C was a new connection at the time, I think it made Thunderbolt seem like a more general use interface, even if you needed a few dongles to actually make use of it at first. It also helped that, I don't know, you could support up to 100 watts of power delivery. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. On a technical level, the biggest advancement with Thunderbolt 3 was effectively allowing four PCIe lanes to be used externally with 40 gigabit per second of bandwidth. This really opened up possibilities of connecting external peripherals that once required those onboard connectors like GPUs. And combined with NVMe, it removed a lot of the difference we've come to expect between external and internal components. So in a lot of ways, we've come full circle here. SCSI was designed as a flexible protocol for a time when a lot of peripheral functions were disaggregated external devices due to technical limitations. And now PCIe, an internal interface, let Thunderbolt and MVME offer external peripherals with the same latency and speed. Yeah, those people in the 60s are laughing right now. Uh, (laughs) So I guess you could say the journey from SCSI to USB-C has kind of taken us there and back again, Scott. Okay, Tom's still on this Lord of the Rings kick, are we? Don't worry about it, Scott. Now, if we're just about done recording, I've got a boat to catch. (laughs) I don't think the L.A. River goes to the undying lands. Current Geek Chronicles is produced by Hammond Chamberlain and Rich Straffolino. Executive produced and hosted by Scott Johnson and Tom Merritt. Interview provided by Howard Marks. Our theme music is by Eric Van Skyhawk. Get more of his songs on Apple Music and Spotify under the name Skyhawk. Rest in peace, Joey Images Hard Drives.
as part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at frogpants.com.